0: You ready? Yeah. Okay. You gonna surprise me? It's gonna be a surprise, buddy. I'm done. Got a whole list of notes here. All
1: right. Let's Hello. go.
0: Oh Jesus! He just stepped on it. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. I'm telling you, I got the mute right. button over here. Don't make okay. me use it. Do go. not make me use this. Ready? I will. I will go. turn this car around. <laughs> Don't
1: make me do it. <laughs> Don't make me do it. Yeah, yeah. Hello, John Schuler. Hello, Brandon Gore! How's it going? Oh, it's going awesome, man. It's awesome. Good. Good to hear. I'm huh? literally looking out the window right now, watching the leaves fall and everything. So, no, man, life is life is kicking butt right now. Yeah. Glad to hear it. How about yourself?
0: I have been in tile making mode. Been you casting been these, that. yeah, I've been casting these concrete tile, quarter inch thick tile for the studio bathroom, one of the bathrooms, other bathroom, I'm going to do Ramcrete in that bathroom, but the office one, I'm going to do these tile. Anyways, been in that mode. It's been fun, but um, a few things, a few interesting things. First is, you know, the last time I made tile on a large scale was back in the polymer days. So I haven't made a whole lot of tile since. I've had um, molds that I keep for casting samples, but I do those on small scale. Anyways, so I've made a ton of tile. I've made well over 1,000 tile in the last week, week and a half. And um, I've reset... Are you coating
1: all the walls in tile?
0: No, no. But uh, it's two sizes of triangle. Uh, it's a larger triangle, like a 7-inch triangle, and then like a little 3-inch uh, triangle. All oh, right. on. And so those little triangles, there's just... Psh, oh. th- uh, Infinite number of those, it seems like. They don't take a whole lot of square footage, so there's a bunch of them. Um, it, it's all about design on this. I would have been smarter to do, like, a large format tile and just cast 20 of them and be done with it. But instead, no, I'm going to cast a 1,000 and, you know.
1: Kind of jigsaw them together. That look yeah, badass. Yeah, though. yeah.
0: It's going to be cool. But where I'm going with this, John, the last time I did a large production run of tile was probably four or five years ago was the last time I did like a large production run for a client. And when I did that, I was still using liquid polymer back then. What I've noticed, it's interesting thing to notice, but because these are multiple use molds I have, um, I'm resetting them every day. What I've noticed is without the polymer, they're almost self-cleaning. Yeah. The polymer, I didn't really realize how problematic it was besides the air it introduces to the mix and the issues with sealer performance. But the other thing that it does is it makes the mix stick to everything because it's glue. And so it right. used to be when I'd cast tile and I'd pop them out, the next day I'd spend forever cleaning the molds because it'd be just little, like a film stuck to the insides. And it would accumulate. So you'd have to clean it off every day. So I'd have to take diluted muriatic acid and, and wash the forms and take a Scotch-Brite and scrub them and then, you know, blow them out with air to dry them. These... I've, I haven't needed to do that. So I essentially pop them out. And if anything, I can just take a little bit of air. If there's like a little little piece that's stuck, blow it, and it pops right off. It's not sticking. It's not bonding to the plastic, the, the form. So anyways, that was just an interesting observation that, you know, we talk about the downsides of polymer. And that's another one that I don't think we've touched on is...
1: Well, we don't touch enough on it. I mean, well, the those propensity people for using mixed without them. Yeah, I mean, I hear all the time... Again, the little nuances is let's say that people pick up on immediately is also like, man, my mixer is so easy to clean now. Mm -hmm. There's always this, um, let's say this, you know, anticipation that if the mix sat too long in your mixer and how hard that's going to be to clean and it's going to get sticky and stuck in the, you know, in on the sides and so forth and so on. And yeah, that's so guys that have moved over, that's not an issue anymore. Or the same thing, remember your paddle, I remember way back when, uh, actually when I first bought this uh, Cola Mix xo 6 when I was still using the, the polymer base, man, my mixer blade, it just always built up, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Especially on the center shaft, and, um, and the PVA fibers get locked in, and then I was constantly, even though I tried cleaning it in after each casting, you know what I mean, two or three days later, I'm taking a, a scraper to him, knocking all the stuff off. Yeah, I don't do any of that anymore.
0: Yeah. It's yeah. awesome. No, it yeah. is awesome. It's one of those things that, you know, I mean, I have noticed that my mixer is a lot easier to clean. I have noticed that. But it's the molds, you know, it's I pop out, I'm like, damn, this mold is clean. It's incredibly clean compared to what I was used to. Last time I did a really large run of tile, and uh, I spent so much time cleaning the molds in between casting. So anyways, yeah. Just don't out there. The second thing that I've realized is I don't charge enough for tile. the The days of uh, charging thirty five a square foot for tile, those are over. It's one hundred and thirty five a square foot. That's my bare minimum price for a countertop, and a countertop is half the amount of work as the tile is for the same amount of square footage because yeah, it's a every, lot of labor. Oh, my God, it's a tremendous amount of labor. you You pour a little bit in. Oh, too much, I gotta get it out, okay, A little bit in. A little. With the countertop, I can just dump it in. I'm done. Yeah. So you're not doing that, number one. Number two is when I pop them out, I got to take a little diamond hand pad and kind of back bevel the, the bottom edge so it doesn't protrude out. So when I go to set them, it's not going to keep the other top next to it from, from lining up properly. So that takes time, right? And then lastly, yep. I have to clean an acid etch and seal every individual tile. And again, a countertop... That's easy. It's one big thing. You can just start there and go there and you're done a tile. You're picking them up Ah, and you're setting it down. You're picking up. Ah. Anyways, my point is as, as an industry, everybody that does tile, I hope you really sit down and reevaluate your numbers on it and um, maybe charge a fair price because I'm telling you 135 is an insanely fair price for the amount of work that goes in a tile. It's not that I'm going to stop doing tile I'm going to continue to do it. I'm just going to value the tile for what it should be valued at, which is 135 square foot. So there's that.
1: Well, you know, what's interesting about this conversation. These are the things, I mean, here you're you're basing it on, again, again, perceived value, how much time and energy you're putting into them and et cetera, et cetera. And I'll bet dollars to whatever. Yeah. That when you set those prices, the clientele looking for that price range because that's the budget they want to be in. They're the ones that are going to demand that tile. Yeah. No, for sure. It's so, beautiful I mean, tile. Part of your target target audience. Yeah. Yeah. One hundred
0: percent. It's beautiful. Now, I was thinking why I was doing it when I'm popping these out of the forms as they come out of the form. They're beautiful. They are beautiful, and there might be a lot of clients out there that are happy with that. That's what they want, right? But for me, I want to clean them with Simple Green, I want to acid etch them, and I want to seal them. And when I clean them with Simple Green and I acid etch them, they look phenomenal. Phenomenal, right? But it's those extra steps that take the cost up, because every time you touch it again, you touch it again, you touch it again... You know, it's time. It's time, and time is what we're billing for.
1: Right. So, anyways, I was just. No, you're about right that. though, and and not to stay on the subject for too long, but I think we've talked about it, and I don't remember the names, but remember there was a guy making a. He called them a cement tile. They were really neat looking, and then some big designer or somebody ended up and then he ended up making them exclusively for this person. Do you remember that whole story? No, they were like, no, it was like a Mexican tile or something. Anyway, next thing you know, yeah, they they still he still makes them for him, but they're an insane amount of money per. Yeah,
0: tile. Yeah, no, I do remember somebody in the last class was talking about it, or at the hoedown somebody was talking about it.
1: Yeah, I just um, don't remember. I, I mean, I said if if I sit and Google it, I'll find it, but because yeah. I don't remember, you know, for Versace or or something. It was, it was like for Ann Sachs. It was for
0: Ann Sachs. There you Sacks, go, yeah. Ann
1: Sachs. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. No, I don't know anything about it. What I do know is. They're beautiful, and they're durable, and they're functional, but they're a lot of work, and you need to charge for your work. I'm doing it for my studio here. I'm going to make custom tile for my house, for bathroom model I'm going to do. And like I said, I do them for clients. I don't do a lot for clients as far as tile, but I have done them over the years where I do get clients that come, and they do want really beautiful handmade tile. That being said, before, I was charging 35 a square foot. And I, I didn't think... That that was unreasonable, but I also didn't think I was really making any money at that price point. And now doing it this time, I, I, I'm certain I'm not making any money at that price point. Like, I'm upside down at 35 135 True, but I guess,
1: again, as I keep digressing, and I apologize. because No, please, you know, digress. Sure, like, John, we're getting it. We're no, getting we got it. it.
0: I know, there's clientele okay. out there that want the $135 a square foot. Well, tile. Yeah,
1: no, check it out. I just I just pulled up Ansax okay. tile okay. just to have this conversation. We're talking about it. And... Right now, I'm looking at an Ansac Terrizo something something, you know, 24 by 24, 494 dial for a single tile.
0: Yeah, okay, but that's four square feet. So he's like 120, uh, not 120. Uh, well, no, it's like again, one, square foot. A
1: Ten by 24, same 497. Okay. Because I thought to pull up that per the so two hundred fifty square
0: foot. So yeah, I mean, I'm, there's people out there that buy it. Now yeah. the Ansac name is going to carry more weight with the clientele as far as you know, demanding that price point. But all I'm saying, John is anybody out there that makes tile, reevaluate your numbers. Cause if you're not
1: 135
0: plus, you're probably not making money on it because it's right. so much work that goes into it. Not that it's not worth it. It is worth it. It's just doing it for the price. It makes sense for yourself and for your, for your business. So that's number one. Number two, you and I were having a conversation a little, a little while ago and we're talking about foam rollers and sealer, yeah. and you are very much against using foam rollers to seal with. Do you want to hit that real quick, John?
1: Well, it's really hard because I, I, so much becomes personal preference. But I will say this. There are individuals out there, I'm thinking like even Martin, right? Martin, I believe, and I haven't spoken to him specifically about what roller he's using, but... It, because of his experience in doing other things, he likes using a foam roller. He's got his system down, and it works right. Me personally, no. I mean, it was an abomination. Um, the see, now, again, ICT is a horrible topical sealer. It'll never work that way. So I found when I was trying to use a foam roller and roll with it, I got more of what I would refer to as a topal, topical-esque kind of thing and the sealer would be soft it would scratch it, it just and it wouldn't perform period i moved over to the 3 microfiber and that solved all issues for me uh, meaning the sealer lays out um, you don't spend a whole lot of time with it because that's the other thing I, i've talked about this before i think as some of the calls i get with anybody having trouble they overwork the sealer and oftentimes, they're overworking it using things like a foam roller, and they keep rolling it, rolling and rolling it, and then they they just don't get off of it. So what they end up doing is rolling it into almost a crust. And I, even a few people with the microfiber, they roll it in, creating a crust. And it's obvious when that happens because you'll see the sheen kind of dull out, almost like a, a soft matte. It'll scratch easily. It's just not doing its job. It was never intended to be that kind of application method and no reactions are happening. So, but no, so to me, if anybody's using a roller, the best one is three eighths microfiber, not quarter inch, not three quarters, believe it or not, the three eighths, it just holds enough material so that it evens out everything you spray down and, um, and then you just don't overwork it. So if that makes sense, um, those guys using foam rollers, Hey man, if it's working for you, great. But if you find that things are soft or it's scratching easily or marring or scuffing easily or the staining and you're just not getting performance again, then all out of ICT, then I would reevaluate not the sealer because the sealers damn near bomb proof from everything I'm seeing. Uh, especially with with, where where we're at today with both concrete and sealer. So what you need to reevaluate is your application method. And if you're rolling, what roller? Because really, I, I keep going, keep going. This type of sealing technology has always been meant to be wiped on, right? Wiped on, microfiber, a uh, floor mop or microfiber sponge, micro, microfiber cloth. So it's only recently the last couple years that we've kind of, you know, been a modifying the technology to handle it, but B because so many people with their backgrounds in rolling methods, but then they, they still got to break some habits and stop the whole quote unquote back roll method. Um, get used to using the materials using rollers and it certainly can be done, but now you really have to pay attention to what kind of rollers you're using so that it's applied properly and not as a topical.
0: Yeah. So don't use a foam roller. Is that what you're saying?
1: I'm straight up. I mean, I, I, for me personally, I would tell anybody just don't use a foam roller. Don't okay. use it. Okay. Don't it use makes a foam no roller. sense. Yeah. Comparatively right. speaking. Yeah. But Check. now I'm going to get some calls. Well, you said I've been using a foam
0: roller. <laughs> oh Dude, it's like, don't use a foam roller. Well, I heard you say use a foam roller. No, I
1: said don't use a foam
0: roller. <laughs> right. Dude, I, uh, I had an email exchange with a client a few days ago. And um, they want to have a conference call with like the GC and the cabinet installer and all these different people, you know, whatever, um, on this project I'm, I'm creating this concrete fireplace and sink for. Anyways, so the, the designer said, um, the only day Brandon isn't available is Thursday. And the first response back from like the builder is like, Thursday works for me. What time works for you guys? (laughs) And she responded back like, no, the only day he's not available Thursday. He's like, oh, I misread that email. Sorry. (laughs) It's like, it can't be any more clear. The only day is I'm not available Thursday. Okay. Yeah. Thursday. So anyways, I think that people just have a tendency to hear something. They don't hear the not or don't or whatever. They just hear something and they think that's it. Great. Yep.
1: Well, and they go back to, like all of us, they fall back on whatever habits they've gotten used to. And if you look out at from sealer point of views, most are using some version of a foam roller.
0: Uh, The last thing I want to hit before we get to the the main part of our podcast here is we have a fundamentals workshop coming up December 4th and 5th, which is like three weeks away. Yeah, three weeks. So if you are interested in learning the basics of concrete, templating, mixing, casting, curing, sealing, and you want to learn it the right way and get off on the right foot in this industry – Uh, Consider this class. Go to ConcreteDesignSchool.com and you can register for that class there. So what I want to talk about, John, is how to make a concrete countertop. How to make a concrete countertop. I think a lot of people that find their way to to this material, that is probably the first thing they're going to make. Is a concrete countertop for most people. That's where you start. Is that how you started? You mean like a flat surface? A flat surface, a countertop. Yeah. yeah. A desktop, a, you know, whatever. Yeah. But for the most part, that's, that's where you're going to start. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I thought, let's talk about that. that. That's something a lot of people have interest in. So let's, let's talk about that subject. Does that work for
1: you? Yeah. But so, but I mean, it's, that's huge, man. Yeah. No, no, it's a couple simple. different casting. Nah.
0: Methods. Don't <sighs> muddy the water. All right. Don't muddy I the mean, water.
1: That is not an easy. Don't one. you, was John yeah. Schuler?
0: Don't you, John Schuler, this conversation with? Right. Technically, yeah. yes, yeah. but and then you go like go on a thousand tangents. Let's not. Let's not do that. We're going to keep it simple.
1: Well, the reason why I brought that up is uh, I don't know. A minute ago, I was on one of the forums, yeah, and I read this post on an individual who's like said, "Hey, I've never done concrete countertops before," and he had. Or, or he or she, whoever they were, had used a, like a plastic form liner. It yeah, was already create, attached the one that, that, that's yeah. That's
0: an interesting post because it has over 200 responses, which I find right. fascinating. And maybe that's why I'm thinking of it, because I saw that post recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel for that guy because I totally understand the do-it-yourself spirit. I'm very much of that yes. mindset. I do a lot of things myself. But I also understand that sometimes it doesn't work out. You know, I installed a mini split over here and I over tightened the line set and lost all the refrigerant. Cause I just cranked it too hard. Well, I had to pay an HVAC guy to come out and recharge it. You know, it happens. So there's lessons learned when you do it yourself. And unfortunately that guy, you know, I, I think learned, I, I don't know, I guess we'll see. Um, learned a tough lesson because some of it turned out good and some of it did not. And it's going to take some work to, to get it usable and maybe at the end of the day, He's not happy with it and ends up tearing it out and doing it again. But that's, that's the process.
1: Right. You know,
0: I mean, it happens, still happens to me. I still cast pieces that it comes out and for whatever reason, I'm just like, I can do that better. I can do that better. Maybe it was a transition into form and I thought, eh, I could do it better. And I I redo it. You know, it just is what it is. It doesn't happen. We all feel that way. Yeah. It doesn't happen all the time and it happens way less than it used to, but Mm. it's, it's just part of it. But how to make a concrete countertop. so, I'm going to discuss what I view as the easiest way to do this. And I'm just going to run through the steps and okay. I might ask you a few questions along the way. Maybe, maybe not. It depends. We'll see how it goes. And then we can discuss it. Okay, number one, template. Now, template, there's a lot of ways to template. The easiest way is to cut strips of a material, whether that's cardboard, whether that's plastic, whether that's luon, whatever it is. And you actually template the countertop or the, the cabinet uh, with those materials. So, hot glue and strips, and you make a template mm-hmm. of that cabinet. That's the easiest yeah. way. You can also take measurements if it's square and your walls are square. It might be good enough, especially if you're gonna make a backsplash, because that'll take up any yeah. inconsistencies right. in the wall. So, template. So, that's number one. Number two is the material you're gonna cast on. For me, and I think the easiest thing for a DIYer is gonna be melamine. Melamine is a material. It's a sheet good that's used in mainly the, the the cabinet building community for closets, insides of cabinets, things like that. So it's a it's a, a particle board core, sometimes MDF, but usually particle board core with a melamine layer on on one side or two sides. I normally get the two sided which essentially is a water-resistant coating. It's good for one cast. You can't cast on it twice because it does swell slightly during, uh, during curing. But um, it's a good surface to cast on, and it's easy to work with. You can cut it with a, a saw easily, and you can pocket screw it and these kind of things. So it's it, for me, I think it makes the most sense to
1: build forms out of. Yeah, simplest, yeah, and yeah. readily available.
0: Yeah, you can go to Home Depot, Lowe's, Menards. Menards is where I'm buying it. Or actually, I just bought uh, – an entire bunk or pallet or however you want to describe it of melamine from a lumber distributor. But yeah, Menards is a good place to go pick it up if you have a Menards close to you. So there is that, so melamine. Uh, The next thing is gonna be layout. So you're gonna take your melamine and you're gonna rip off some strips and then you're gonna have to determine what thickness of a countertop you want. Inch and a half is the most common thickness. I prefer inch and a half personally. Everything in your house is built for inch and a half countertops. Your stove, when it slides in, is designed for an inch and a half countertop. So me personally, inch and a half makes the most sense. It's thick enough that it's easy to to install. When I say easy, relatively easy. You're going to need two or three strong friends to help you. But it's, it's thin enough that you don't have to reinforce your cabinetry. If you went to two inch, two and a half, three, you're getting into some serious weight unless you do a drop down edge that becomes problematic. And I have had clients over the years that want three inch solid. Great. I'm happy to do it. But you're looking at 30 plus pounds a square foot, 35 pounds a square foot. And you know, if you're talking about a slab, that's 30 square feet, that's a thousand pounds. So you are going to need to reinforce your cabinetry to to hold that. And it's going to be much more difficult to get it in the space and blah, 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 blah. So inch and a half solid is my preference for a kitchen countertop. And uh, like I said, Everything in your kitchen is already designed for that thickness for the most part. So that's what I prefer. So if you're doing inch and a half, you're gonna rip inch and a half strips off the long side of your melamine, the 96 inch long side. So inch and a half by 96, rip however many strips you're gonna need, two, three, four. Then I take that template and I put it face down on my melamine, we're casting upside down. So you need to flip it over, put it face down. And it's very important that when you make your template, you label this side up and then flip it over and put this side up in form or however you want to say it. It doesn't matter, but you just need to make notes so you know when you put it in your form that it's upside down. So you put your template in upside down and then you trace it. I prefer to trace it. I don't try to build my form to the template. It has a tendency to want to move or you can you know, push it in a little bit and, and kind of distort it. So when it's face down, I trace it with a pencil, and I build to that pencil line. And it's funny, I've had architects over the years ask me, you know, what are your tolerances, like eighth of an inch? I'm like, eighth of an inch? No, like a thousandth of an inch. I split a pencil line. When I make a template, or if I'm doing measurements, I draw it out, and I split the pencil line. That's my, that's my tolerance. Like, oh,
1: wow, okay, yeah.
0: And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what we do.
1: So you're saying, and I'm interrupting, yeah. when you template, so you're not templating to the edge of the cabinet. You're actually templating to your overhang?
0: hmm That's how I do it. Oh. And that's okay. how I was taught by Granite Company. I had a buddy in Phoenix that had a granite company, and he taught me how to template. And we're going to teach, yeah, teach this in the, um, the fundamentals class on how we template. But there's a method to, to template to final size, and that's sure. what I do. I don't template and then leave notes like extend, inch and a half. I mean, you could. You could do all those things. But I find it easier to actually template to final size and that resolves any potential issues in the field. Because maybe you do extend and then this side extends and then they bump and you have a problem. So it's a lot easier to template to the final size and then divide your template up into the pieces, which is the other thing. If you have a really long piece or an L-shaped piece, I template it all as one piece and then I divide my template into the actual pieces. And I know when I put it back together, it'll all fit perfectly. That's a good point, John. That's a good point so it's face down you trace it and then you're gonna have to attach your edges to you know your big flat sheet of of melamine that you've traced your your uh outline onto so for me the easiest way to do that is with pocket screws pocket screws have i think revolutionized form building i remember when pocket screws were first kind of coming on the scene for me it was a game changer because up until then I'd been screwing down through the top of the melamine. I'd drill yeah. a pilot hole and recess it and drill down in, but inevitably you split the melamine. It torques it in a weird way.
1: Yeah, you know, create I, little bubbles
0: along it. Yep. Yeah, I took Buddy Rhodes' very first class. the only class I ever went to, but his very first class he ever taught. And I remember him building that form, and I didn't know anything about concrete back then or more mold building when I took that class. But I did know that that edge of the form shouldn't be doing what it was doing <laughs> when yeah. you look down the edge of the they made a countertop it was waving in and out it was leaning in this way out that way in this way out that way because they were screwing down through the top of the melamine and it was just torquing the melamine back and forth right and i, I was thinking like mm, there's probably a better way to do that but you know it, it was just the nature of screwing through the top of melamine it was just problematic and so pocket screws came out and the main company in that space is called craig K-R-E-G, Craig. And they sell <clears throat> pocket screw kits, DIY kits, at any hardware store now, Lowe's, Home Depot, Ace. They all sell these Craig kits. You go and you buy it, and it's a little clamp jig that clamps to the edge of the melamine. And then you have a, um, a drill bit, that's specially designed, that goes in at an angle and drills a pocket hole. It's just a, a, a angled hole into the side of the melamine. And then you use special screws that Craig manufactures, which I recommend to attach it down and you know there's there's a little bit of math involved um in the box explains where to set that drill bit depth and what size screw you need depending on what you're screwing together um but with three quarter inch melamine which is what i recommend not half inch but three quarter i should have said that earlier you're going to use inch and a quarter craig screws so you pocket screw your edges your inch and a half edges and you screw them to your form and split the pencil line. Now, something to know about pocket screws is they angle forward, the best way to describe it, um, they angle forward. And as you're tightening the screw, it wants to pull that edge a little bit in that direction. It's kind of angling forward. And as you tighten it, it pulls it that way. So when you're putting your edges on, you want to hold them back just a hair, like one, I don't know, 164th or even less. And as you tighten it, you'll see it pulling up to the pencil line. And after you do a few of them, you'll figure it out. Because if you put them perfectly on the line and you tighten it, it'll pull past the line and your mold will be slightly too small. Now, again, most people never notice, but if you're going for precision, you hold it back just a little bit and as you tighten it up, it pulls it right to that pencil line. Okay, so you got your form, you screwed your edges down. Now you need to create your round over in your form, okay? Now the roundover is primarily to create a functional edge. If you had a sharp concrete edge and you rubbed your hand on it, you would cut your hand. You know, I actually it happened to me today with these tiles. The the back edge is sharp until I bevel it with a diamond hand pad and I cut my my hand on it. So you need to round that over. And the best way to do that is by siliconing a roundover into your form. Okay. Now there used to be a really compli- complicated ways to do that. Um, I want to say in Futong Chang's book, they used blue tape and then they put silicone in there and tooled it and then pulled yeah, the tape.
1: Pull the tape, yep.
0: And then you left like a little bit of a line in the silicone that showed up in your concrete and you had to try to polish out, which if you're water polishing, you could get it out. But uh, it was a very time-intensive way. When I first started, that's the way I did it. It was very time-intensive. And over the years, we've come out with easier and faster ways to do it. I'm going to tell you my way which I think is the easiest way. So you wanna get GE silicone type two, okay? So type two GE silicone. And you wanna get a color that is, I would say, in the range of the piece you're casting, but that you can see. So the white silicone is very hard to see on white melamine. So if I'm casting a white piece, I'll use a cream-colored silicone. If I'm casting a black piece, I'll use black silicone, right? You don't have to color match it. If you're casting red concrete, you don't need red silicone, but I'd use gray. And the reason for that is I have experienced some tendency for colored silicone to absorb into the concrete and discolor it. So if I'm using black silicone and casting white concrete, I have had that black silicone yellow the concrete slightly, slightly. It it seemed like that pigment in the silicone slightly discolored the concrete. And so from that day on, I just, if I'm doing light colored concrete, I use cream, dark, I use black, anything in the middle, I'll use gray. And I, I don't worry about that slight discoloration if it were to ever happen again. So you get GE type two silicone and you apply a nice bead into the corner you want to round over on. Then, while it's still wet, right after you apply it, you take foaming glass cleaner and I spray it, spray the whole line of silicone. Then I take a popsicle stick and I tool that line, meaning that I use the popsicle stick to create the roundover. So I just run it down that line and it picks up the excess, but doesn't. none of the excess sticks to the edges, if that makes sense. It's almost like non-stick. And so you, yep. you tool it, you wipe off the excess on a paper towel when it builds up, and then you tool it and you wipe off the excess, and you tool it and you wipe off the excess, and then you let it dry. And if there's any that did bleed off the sides, you take a little razor blade, scrape those off, and, uh, and, you know, and then you're, you're going to let it cure. You let it cure overnight, and you let, the, let the, uh, the glass cleaner just evaporate and dry. You don't have to worry about trying to wipe it out. It's not going to hurt anything. And so that's how you do your silicone roundover, the easy way. There's harder ways. I used to do the harder ways. I don't do that anymore. Now I just use a foaming glass cleaner, and I tool it, and I'm done. So the next day you're going to come in, and you're going to need to clean the form before you cast. Now for me, I'm actually going back to an old-school Chang trick, and that's to use a product called Gel Gloss. And And I'm
1: going to interrupt you. So what was your reasoning as I'm sitting here listening, because I'm just nodding my head as you go, What's your reasoning for waiting till tomorrow between caulking your edges, creating your roundover? Why did you wait a day? I think that's important information.
0: Yeah, to allow the silicone to fully cure so it doesn't want to bond to the concrete.
1: Right. And if it doesn't, <laughs> then it, yeah, we get it's a sticky mess. bad air holes and sticking and etc. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. So wait. I mean, there's never a rush. People are like, well, I can cast an hour after I do it. Yeah, good why? practice. Why? 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 There's no point. Like,
1: uh, I just
0: don't get it, but whatever, you know.
1: Yeah, these are the little things. That's what I'm saying. When you just say, yeah, then the next day, whoa, why did you wait till the next day? That's a You important. gotta
0: let it cure. Gotta let yeah. it cure, John. So next day you come in, you need to clean your form. The, um, the dried glass cleaner is going to leave like some residue in the edges. You can see it in raking light. You got to get that out. But also your form, there might be pencil lines, there might be scuffs, there might be whatever. You need to clean it. And so Futong Chang, back in the day, used to use Formica to cast on, which was high gloss. I don't recommend that, but that's what he used to do. And they would clean the Formica with a product called Gel Gloss because it was made for cleaning high gloss surfaces. I found it to be extremely good at cleaning melamine as well. And in some ways, it, it just creates a nicer cast finish. It kind of slicks out the melamine in a way. And so what you do with the gel gloss, and they sell that again at Lowe's or Home Depot, is you shake the can and you spray a nice even mist over the entire piece. I'll do it on top of sink molds. I do it on the melamine, your edges. You spray it all. You let it um, essentially sit there for a minute or so and then you take a towel and you wipe it all down and then you let it dry. And so you wipe it to kind of even it out and pick up all the excess. And then you just like leave a thin layer and you let it dry. And once it dries, which takes a few minutes, you take another towel that's dry and you buff it. And when you do that, you'll just see the whole mold shine up really nice, really nice. And at that point, you're essentially ready to cast. If, for instance, you had a sink mold in your form, which we're not talking about, we're talking about a countertop, but if you did, you want to apply a release agent to that sink mold. But if you're just casting into melamine, which we're doing, you don't need to add a release agent. There's no need for it. The melamine will release from the concrete. And that being said, the Joe Gloss in some ways kind of acts as a release because it just makes it more hydrophobic, the melamine. It makes it uh, repel the concrete to an extent to where it just falls off. When I use Joe Gloss and I pull my, my edges, they just fall off. So at this point, you're gonna need to cast your concrete. Now for this exercise, we're gonna be talking about using SCC GFRC mix consistency with Kodiak Pro Maker Mix, which I think is the easiest mix by far that's gonna yield the best results by far. So if you go to KodiakPro.com and you click on Maker Mix, we have the mix recipes available on the website. You can download it and you're gonna be using the SCC G-F-R-C, mixed design. But you're going to need to calculate how much concrete you need. And for that, you're going to need to calculate your volume of your countertop. And so for that, you're going to measure your length and your width and your height. Height. No T-H. Mm -hmm. Your height. And you're going to multiply those three together. So length times width times height. And you're you're going to divide that number, whatever that is, by 1,000. 728, 1728. So you get your length times width times height, multiply those three, and then divide by 1728, and that will give you your cubic feet, which is volumetric. That's a cubic foot of concrete. And on the back of Maker Mix, we have the volume that one bag makes. What is that, John? 0.37 cubic feet. 0.37. So let's say, for instance, your measurement was uh, you need 0.6 cubic feet. Okay. Well, you're going to probably need two bags, right? There's no point in trying to weigh out the bag in three quarters. So you're going to mix up two bags. Yeah,
1: 1.62. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What? What are you talking about? 1.62 bags.
0: Yeah, 1.62. Yeah, but I'm saying who's going to do that?
1: No. No, but. Unless you leave some extra. Exactly.
0: Yeah, nobody's going to do that. So you're going to, you're going to, calculate your volume of your form and then you're going to divide that by 0.37 and that's going to tell you how many bags you need. And then from there, you can figure out the rest of it. How much TBP you need, how much glass fiber you need, how much water and ice you need. Okay, so you'll you'll get your mix quantity and your materials needed by doing that. That's a really common question, people. How much concrete do I need? That's how you right. calculate it right there. That's the easiest and most accurate way. The other thing I'd recommend is always add 10 to 20% to that number for waste because the mixing process itself is, you know, you're going to end up losing concrete, sometimes on the floor, sometimes as you're pouring it, it falls on the yep, floor. Tools, yeah, your
1: yeah. tools, in the bucket, yeah.
0: Don't try to get too precise in the sense of, oh, I, you know, it says I need 0.37, so I'm going to mix up one bag. You might want to mix up a bag and a half or a bag and a quarter just to have a little bit of excess. It's better to have a little bit too much than not enough because if you come up with a little bit short, and then you have to go through the whole thing of batching, mixing, slaking, mixing, glass fiber, pouring. You know, you might get a cold joint between those two layers. So it's better just to have a little bit too much than a little bit too little. That's my advice. All right, so SEC, GFRC, how do you mix that? Well, let's talk about it. So you're going to batch out your water and your ice. You're going to batch your TBP, which you're going to weigh in grams, and uh, your glass fiber. And if you're using pigment, you're going to weigh that out as well. And um, so you're gonna you're gonna have all your dries weighed out, and you have all your liquid in a bucket. So I'm gonna add my dry to my liquid. I'm gonna add probably about three quarters of it, maybe half, three quarters of the dry to the liquid. And I'm gonna mix it up, and I'm gonna be using a Collomix EXO6 handheld mixer. Uh, if you don't have one of those, you can go to Lowe's or Home Depot, and they now sell these tile mixers, handheld tile mixers in the tile section. They They didn't have those when I started, Uh, but now they do. And it's kind of a knockoff of the column mix, but it'll work for a project or two. I wouldn't buy it for a lot of pieces. So you add your dry to the liquid. You add all your TBP in there. You mix it up, okay? You're going to add, we talked about this in the last podcast, but you're going to add about 70% of your dry. You're going to mix it. You're going to add a little bit more of your dry. You're going to mix it. You're going to add the remainder of your dry. You're going to mix it. And the reason you do that is so you don't, Choke the mix is what we call it, but essentially you don't, you don't introduce too much dry too fast, and it's difficult to mix. So you want to kind of layer the dry into the liquid as you're mixing, so you end up with an easier mixing cycle. and in, in the end, a better mix, in our opinion. Any thoughts, John?
1: No, dude, I'm just following along. You're all there. I'm, I was just going to say, you we, we just went through the mixing. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, I've probably taken a dozen calls since the last podcast. And messages when people have increased their flow and now using a little less TBP by again breaking the loading and and making everything more. I always use the word efficient, but allowing the plasticizer to be stronger.
0: Absolutely,
1: a lot of So yeah, it's it's amazing difference if you just follow those steps.
0: It, it is, yeah. So you're gonna mix up your mix, however much you need. You're gonna mix it up, and then you're gonna let it set for ten minutes. And this is called slaking. It's called a flash set. It's called a false set. There's a lot of different names for different industries, different terminology, but it's all the same thing. You're going to let that mix just rest. You're not going to disturb it for 10 minutes. The best way to describe what's happening is the concrete. This is the way I describe it. It's probably not correct, but this, in my mind, it makes sense, is the concrete's going to start forming some bonds. It's going to start forming bonds and starting to uh, set to some extent. And we're going to break those bonds after 10 minutes. We're going to take the mix. We're going to mix it up again. And it takes longer for those bonds to reform. Now, that's probably not the what's happening. And John can give you a much more concise answer. But in my mind, that makes sense. And that's the way I visualize it in my head. Uh, but guys that do masonry, they mix up mortar. They let it slake. They let it set for 10 minutes. They mix it again. And instead of that mix kicking off in 15, 20 minutes, it'll last for an hour while they're setting, setting brick. So that's the same thought process with this is we let it set and then we mix it up again. And we're gonna end up with a mix that has longer working time, longer open time, essentially before it wants to gel up on you to some extent. So we're gonna mix it up again after that 10 minute slake, and then you're gonna add in your glass fiber. And we're using AR glass fiber, alkali resistant glass fiber. Do not go down to a fiberglass um, supply store that sells fiberglass for automotive and get glass fiber and put that in your concrete. The concrete will destroy that glass fiber you need to get AR Glass Fiber. Uh, A company called Silica Systems is who I buy it from. They're in California. But AR Glass Fiber. So you're going to add your glass fiber in. And at this point, when you're mixing that glass fiber in, you want to slow down your mixer because the glass fiber is susceptible to damage. So you don't want to be going full bore, you know, max that thing out because you'll tear those fibers up. So slow down your mixer, fold it in like you're baking, like you're you're making cinnamon rolls or something. You just want to, layer those in, fold it in, and as soon as they're dispersed evenly through the mix, you're done mixing. Mixing anymore is not gonna do any good. It's just gonna cause problems. So once those fibers are dispersed through that mix, you're done, okay? So the mix is done. At that point, you're gonna take the mix over to your form and you're gonna pour it in. Now, a little tip for you is pour it in one spot. I traditionally start in a corner. And let the mix flow out ahead of you and pour onto existing mix. Meaning if I pour here, that mix flows out, I'm not going to go over here and pour in a spot where there's no mix and then go over there and pour in a spot with no mix, because as those kind of blobs of concrete flow out and meet each other, they're going to trap air where the where they meet. And so if you have multiple pores and they all kind of come together, I see this in, uh, on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram, people posting videos of making countertops and I see them pouring here and pouring there and pouring over there and pouring over there. And every place those pores eventually meet, they're gonna trap air. And so what I do is I pour in one spot and then from there, I just let it flow out and I keep pouring onto existing mix. I don't pour in front of it, I pour onto. It and I just let it keep flowing, keep flowing. And I just follow it as it goes and keeps pouring onto it. So you pour the concrete in, you fill it up to the top of your table, which the other thing I didn't tell you, John, which is important is before you start this whole process, make sure your table is level. Okay? Cuz you're doing an SCC mix, it's going to find level on its own. If your table is slanted, one side's an inch higher than the other side, that concrete is going to find level and you're going to with a countertop that's inch and a half here and a half inch over there because it's tilted. So be sure your table is level, okay? So you're gonna fill it up to the top. You're gonna slosh the table around a little bit. And I just bump it with my hip. Just give it a little slosh. And you'll see it just you'll see the concrete uh just kind of level out very nice. And then I take a, a rubber mallet and I just go around the form and I just tap gently, not the edge of the countertop, but just the flat section. Just tap, 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 just around the edge. So any air that might be trapped in that round over where we siliconed or whatever that it gives it a chance to want to pop up off that and come up to the to the surface. So I just go around, tap, 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 tap. We're not going to use a traditional concrete vibrator. They sell vibrators for concrete. Those are detrimental to an SEC, GFRC mix. So don't do that. If you're going to do any vibration, it's low amplitude. It's going to be rubber mallets, and you're just going to gently tap the table and just go around the piece. And that's it, okay? At that point, you are, it. for for all intents and purposes, you are done making the countertop. So you're going to walk away. You're going to walk away for, you know, you're going to go clean your shop. You're going to clean your tools. You're going to sweep the floor. You're going to throw away the empty bags. And then you can go get a coffee. You can take a break. You can do whatever. You're going to give it a few hours. So wait a few hours. You're going to come back and the concrete should have gelled up by then. The, The backside should be firm to the touch. It's still going to be soft. You could poke your finger through it if you pushed, but when you touch it, it's not going to stick to your finger, okay? So it's gelled up. At this point, you're going to very gently and carefully cover the backside with polyester felt, and you can get that at any fabric store. It's super cheap. Polyester felt, not wool felt. Wool felt's like 100 bucks a yard. Polyester felt's like $3 a yard. So polyester felt. Then you're going to put a sheet of plastic over the back. So just uh, a plastic... Like uh you know whatever it is uh uh well, I don't know what the thickness is one mil or 0.3 mil I don't know what it is but the thick stuff get the thick plastic at Lowe's or Home Depot but yeah, a plastic four mil. four mil so so get a plastic drop cloth like a nine by twelve at uh, Lowe's or Home Depot and uh, layer that on uh, over the over the back of the uh, polyester felt and then take some packing blankets you'll go to Harbor Freight that's the cheapest place to buy them they're like seven bucks each buy three or four packing blankets and cover the back of that with packing blankets, okay? Do that and let it set for 24 hours, minimum, 24 hours, from the time you cast it till, till it's time to take the, the form off, 24 hours. When you come in the next day and you reach up underneath those layers, that thing should be cooking. I mean, it should be really hot. And you want to leave it. Don't, don't get antsy. Don't pull the forms too soon. Let the concrete continue to cure. What you're going to be checking for is you want to reach up underneath and you want the concrete to reach ambient room temperature on its own, covered. So when that concrete has reached ambient temperature of the the room around it, at that point you can uncover it. And typically it's gonna be 24 hours, maybe a little bit more, but let the concrete do its thing. It's gaining strength, it's not, you're not doing any favors by pulling it early, right? So let it go. You're gonna pull your plastic off the back, your felt off the back, and if you need to grind, Now's the time to do it. So maybe you poured a little bit too much and your concrete's a little too thick. You can take a grinder and you can grind the backside, leaving the edges on, the the melamine edges, leave those on. They're gonna A, be a guide so you know that you've gone far enough, but B, it helps protect them from chipping out. If you take those off, then you grind, you can chip that bottom edge um, because the grinder is aggressive and it can chip it out. So leave the edges on and grind if you need to grind. And then at that point, you can pull the pocket screws, and you can carefully remove the edges. Okay, so those melamine edges. At this point, before I flip it, I take a diamond hand pad and I bevel the bottom edges. I just give them a quick rub down. They also sell rub stones for brick. Not that I recommend them, but I know some people use them for this purpose. Uh, but you just want to ease that edge. You can even use a sander or a sandpaper, like 80 grit sandpaper. Ease that bottom edge, because it's sharp. So you want to ease it. Then you want to essentially flip the piece over. Oops, sorry. You want to flip the piece over by hinging it. Okay, so what I mean by this is if you're doing a a countertop, you don't want to come over to one corner and just lift up on it because what you're doing is you're putting all the pressure on the opposing corner. You're lifting it up and you're creating a pressure point on one little tiny corner way over there. That's not good. Don't do that. You want to have some help here. But what you do want to do is you want to hinge it. Think of like a door hinge. When I lift up the piece, I want the long edge on the other side to remain in full contact with that melamine form as I'm flipping it up. So that pressure is evenly distributed. It's not just on one corner. It's not a point load, it's evenly distributed. That's very important. Whenever I see people say, oh, I broke a piece, it's because you just cranked on one edge, right? You created a lot of stress in a piece that didn't need to be there. So you want to lift it evenly and you want to hinge on the long side. Leave that so it's always rested on the melamine as you're flipping it. So you have some help, you have some friends, and you very carefully lift up one side and you leave the other side touching the melamine. You flip it up. At that point, you can lift up evenly at the same time. Again, don't lift to one side and put pressure on the other corner. But together, as a team, lift it up, move it back, put foam strips down on top of your table, and then you can, again, let it hinge on on one long edge, lower it down. So now it's right side up. So now it's right side up. You can see it for the first time and it's resting on foam strips. The foam strips let air evenly circulate around the piece. This is very important. If you just flipped it over and you let it be completely in contact with the melamine or your table or whatever, but air can't circulate, the top is going to expand and contract at a different rate than the bottom. And that's going to create curling issues. And so, when again, I see on social media, people do that. They're just setting themselves up for problems with curling because it's gonna be trying to cure and it's gonna to start to have a differential and it's gonna curl. So you wanna flip it over and be sure it's on foam strip so air can circulate. At this point, you're gonna to need to process the concrete. So what I do is I take the concrete, I usually let it set for a day before I do this. So you wanna let it set for a day, give it a day but I take it into an area where I can uh, get it wet. So if you're doing it at your house, this will be your driveway probably, or out in the yard. Um, In my shop, I have a, a wet area inside my shop. I take it in there and I hose the whole thing down with water and I take a diamond hand pad. And they sell these for stone and granite and concrete. I'm gonna use that diamond hand pad wet on my roundovers, just to clean them up, just to make them look nice. Maybe when I silicone them, there was like a spot where the popsicle stick created like a little line or something. This will even it all out, make it look really nice. So I hit all my round overs with that wet diamond hand pad. I hit any other areas that need to, to be uh, rounded over a little bit more, just you know cleaned up. And then I take Simple Green. Simple Green is a degreaser. Some place like, uh, what am I thinking of? Dollar General sells one called Purple Power, which is a degreaser, a lot of people use that. But you need a degreaser, and you're going to spray the whole piece down with the degreaser, all the concrete. That's going to get any residue off the concrete. So maybe there was mold release, or there was wax, or there was gel gloss. Well, yeah,
1: gel, any residue. Yeah. Cast residue.
0: Exactly. You want to strip all that off. So that degreaser is going to clean your concrete. So you're going to spray it with the degreaser. Again, I use Simple Green. And then you're going to rinse it off with the water. And then you're going to acid etch the concrete. This is my preferred method for processing the concrete. So for the acid etch, you're gonna take water and muriatic acid, which they sell at any hardware store in the in the outdoor section, it's in the pool area. They use it for pools. You're gonna take muriatic acid and you wanna get actual muriatic acid. You don't wanna get the muriatic acid alternatives. They sell these quote unquote green acids, which actually aren't muriatic acid, oh. they're salt. Um, you wanna get muriatic acid and I'm gonna dilute it, five parts water, one part acid. And I put it in a pump-up sprayer. And I just use a little handheld pump-up sprayer. They're like 10, 12 bucks at Home Depot or Lowe's. The pump-up handheld sprayer. So I put five parts water, one part acid in the pump-up sprayer. The concrete is wet. It's rinsed off. It's nice and wet. And I start spraying it down with this diluted acid solution. And I just walk around the piece and I keep it wet. I'm just continually reapplying the acid. I'm never letting it dry. And I'm just keeping it keeping it constantly reapplied the reason is when i apply that muriatic acid to the concrete that diluted muriatic acid it's reacting but then it's it's self-neutralizing pretty quickly against the concrete you can see it reacting you can see it bubbling but within 15 20 seconds it just goes dormant it's done. yeah yeah so i need to keep it keep reapplying so it keeps keeps activated and keeps etching the surface so you walk around it you're just psh- you're just walking around, walking around, walk around. It's super easy, no stress. You're just keeping it wet. After about, I don't know, thirty seconds to a minute, I take a hose and I rinse it off. And I feel it. I feel it with my finger. Now I can tell pretty much just by looking at it that it's what I'm looking for. But I feel it. I'm, I'm me personally. I'm looking for like a anywhere from like a two twenty to a four hundred wet sandpaper feeling, tactile feeling when I touch the surface. There'll be a little bit of a tooth to it, but it's it's very fine, okay. So then, well, after I've rinsed off all the acid and it, the the top is, you know, completely clean, I take a green Scotch Brite pad, which you again can get in your hardware store, and I scrub the entire surface with water and the Scotch Brite, and I scrub the whole surface. I just scrub it all evenly. Go over the whole thing. Go over it two or three times. You don't want to miss a spot, and it's very easy to miss a spot when it's wet. You can't see it, so just go over it, go over it, go over it, go over it. You're not going to hurt it. Scrub, 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 scrub. Then rinse it off with the water, and that's when you actually see the concrete because all that uh, concrete on the top was softened by the acid. But until you scrub it with the Scotch Brite, it doesn't come off. So when I rinse it with the water, it all washes off. That top layer washes off, and then I can actually see the little sand particles and I see the concrete. And then, you know, and it's very even because when you first demold it, it might be some blotchiness due to moisture absorbing out of the form due to the melamine edge or whatever it is. But when I acid etch, it evens it out. So it's super even. And that's when you actually have a good sense of what the finished piece is going to look like. Uh, I take a squeegee and I squeegee off all the, the water. And then I take a clean cloth and I dry off any areas uh, that still have some water left on it. And I let it dry. And at that point, we're going to be ready for sealer. But that is the process of how to make a concrete countertop
1: from start to finish. Did I miss anything? No, I don't think so. That's pretty much start to finish. Build a mold, use your mold material, fill the mold, let it cure, cure it properly or the best of your ability and process it. There it is.
0: And that really is 20 years of trying every wrong way to do it, and that's the easiest way, in my opinion, to make a concrete countertop.
1: Yeah, Yeah, the caveats that come in there is which mold materials, uh, which silicones, you know, blah, and then that's where experience becomes endless on what you're doing. You know, upright cast, pre-cast, SCC, you know, uh, textured looks. You know, this is where the material itself becomes... I think, I, you know, I just think of concrete, like a clay, you can pretty much make it what you want. Do you want it even like a big part that you described was doing an, again, an SCC to create that kind of even don't pour from three different spots because where those spots end up coming together, you're going to have a certain look, but on the flip side, without you knowing it, you just told people how to create a certain look, pour it in different spots. Anyway, just stuff like that. Yeah.
0: No, and that's the point of my, my um, point of view on this is, in my opinion, this is the easiest way to make a concrete countertop.
1: Undeniably.
0: Yeah, yes. from there, like you said, you can go into upright cast. You can go into spraying a face coat and applying a back coat. You can do the dusty creep method with casting powders and carving techniques. There's, yep. From there, it's infinite. But this is step one in a journey of a thousand miles. This is step one on how to make a concrete countertop. And I wish I would've known how to do it this way when I started, because the ways I used to do it were so difficult in comparison to what I just described. What I just described is a very easy way, any DIYer can do what I just described and come out with a countertop that rivals the best pros out there in the sense of, Mm -hmm. if you're using the right mix, the right form material, the right silicone, you're curing it properly, you're processing properly, and then your are sealing property, there's no reason why your countertop that you made yourself in your garage doesn't look as good as one I made in my studio and I've been doing it for 20 years. You should be able to have the and same And the good. Exactly, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Exactly. Agreed. So the last thing, 100%. John, is the sealer part. I thought I'd leave that to you to discuss sealing for a beginner. Don't go into the... I wouldn't even use a torch because a lot of people don't have a torch and aren't going to buy a torch. What would be the best person? So somebody's cured it, Acid etched it. At this point, they need to seal it with ICT. What is your recommended protocol for sealing that piece for a beginner? Again, taking into taking that into consideration that this is going to be the first piece they're going to seal using ICT.
1: Yeah, to me, that the simplest method would be first of all the dry concrete. You know, you've already processed it. Let it go at least overnight till the next day, and eight ounce pull trigger spray bottle that you can pick up from. Amazon or any, you know, local Ace Hardware, whatever the case may be. And essentially, a microfiber cloth, microfiber sponge. You wet the surface, you wipe the surface, you basically, and I mean, in the simplest form I can see with ICT, the idea is to treat it like a penetrating sealer and saturate and let the material dwell. Uh, start out with diluted. Like my my recognition minimum on a first application, dry piece of concrete would be two parts water, one part sealer, so that you can really have some open work time to work a surface without the sealer reacting on you. Um, after that, once that dries, which would take a little minute if you're not using something, you know the little techniques that that the pros have used to speed the process up let it dry i I would give it at least 30 minutes to dry and then apply a second application diluted one-to-one with water and when i say water it's clean water and it doesn't have to be crazy um crystal geyser any of your clean waters uh deionized water that you can pick up at you know, most places, grocery stores, and otherwise, any of that stuff will work just fine. Yeah, distilled water, which is like fifty yeah, cents distilled a gallon. water. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just stuff like that, and a couple applications diluted, and again, using a microfiber sponge, microfiber cloth, or depending on the size of the project, you could even use your microfiber mop. You know, the kind of stuff that's used on on cleaning floors and uh after that a couple 3 4 applications of full strength done each each one of those application making sure they're dried in between give at least 30 minutes of dry time and finish up i said the caveat to this just cuz we're talking about DIY meaning people who may not have the tooling the torch you know these kind of things to manipulate the materials would be let all that sealer cure the next day and then i would still wipe down with vinegar household vinegar and you know try to to speed up the reactions but you're not going to do it as quickly as some of us are doing it you know just a few minutes after an application but the following day wipe with vinegar and uh and you you'll be ready to go are you diluting the vinegar or just using it full strength no just full strength if you if you go till the following day and you've given it overnight to cure, full strength will be just fine.
0: And would windex with vinegar, would that have a similar effect, or would you still recommend like a white vinegar?
1: No, that would be more cleaning. Yeah. There's because if on the young sealer like that, which again, we're describing non manipulation. You know, we're not we're not pushing heat or we're not doing any of this stuff like all of us who are doing I'm trying to turn a project and maybe install it the next day or within 48 hours, someone who's doing it in place or at their home and maybe moving it into their uh, bathroom to install, you you don't the, even the Windex with vinegar is going to have soaps and cleaning agents and these kind of things that you don't want to disrupt the young sealer. So just, just, just plain white distilled vinegar that you want in, in any grocery store. That's what I would use probably wipe it down two or three times, you know, every few hours or after you install kind of stuff that will push the chemistry a little bit faster with having, but maintenance and cleaning. Yeah. Windex with vinegar would be optimal. Um, Clorox multipurpose cleaner, you, you know, things like that. And then after that would just be the, the, again, the small nuances that would probably, again, one of those situations where I might recommend a ceramic coat, your basic ceramic coat that you find at Pet Boys or Tragen really? or, or any of these so, kind of things. So tell me about yeah. that,
0: because it's the first time I've heard you say that. What, what, what oh, are you, ceramic
1: coats? Yeah. So, yeah, ceramic coats are a silica dioxide. They're used a lot for your uh, to keep your paints on, especially on new cars. Keep them hard, let them slide easy, things like this. Now, most of us doing it where we're manipulating with things like heat and torch and— wiping in between every application and doing all this kind of stuff. It's it's not as necessary, but the reality is this goes back to heat curing versus not. So now we're going to talk about the sealer. You're not heat curing it, right? You're not pushing the yeah, chemistry. Yeah, you're talking about somebody
0: doing it DIY. They're, you know, right, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So you're not, yeah. And, you know, you can still push it to the best of your ability, but you're just not going to have the tooling unless you invest in it. And that might get a little expensive for a, you know, small one-off project. But the silicon dioxide ceramic coat reacts with the sealers right off the bat. And it helps create a uh, a functional ceramic film that's, how would I describe it? Um, it you know, it's not going la- to last forever. But yeah, it, it's superficial and it's going to be a short-term duration for early protection. Huh. That we don't we, we don't necessarily need, but I could see in the situation where you're not manipulating it, that would help tremendously. Gotcha.
0: Yeah, I've never heard of that. Of you recommending that, that's interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, it's because most of us aren't doing it DIY. Yeah.
0: Meaning, well, I mean, I mean, you know, some again, people
1: are, but. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know. Most of us are using it in um, from a business point of view. We're all using the manipulation techniques, and yeah. I have talked talked about ceramics with many people, just more as a uh, how would I get again a, a superficial something that helps slide. You might be in a home that you know again a lot of cast iron or or clay pottery and these kind of stuff, but it's something that you know is going to wear out, and it just helps ease. That's all. But yeah, yeah I, I definitely in this situation, if you're not using the heat and you're not using the manipulation techniques, I would definitely, this, I would recommend that as part of it rather than a, mm, maybe you ought to try it. No, that, that one I just go get. Huh. Order it on Amazon. Yeah. Cool. Something like that. Well,
0: that's interesting. I want to test it now just to do it. Yeah. Do a little no, piece. I like
1: the ceramics, man. I mean, they're, they're really cool.
0: Huh. Well, I learned something new today, John. Which is good. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's always good to learn new things. And I'm, I, I will go down to AutoZone or something, pick some up and just apply it to a little test piece and see how I like it. It's interesting. I know Dusty used to do something kind of like that with coconut oil as right. like a sacrificial layer that he'd put on just to make it more hydrophobic in the early days, um, knowing that it's not going to last very long. But, you know, it would...
1: Yeah, the problem with that is kind of like waxes. In my, now again, in my experience, not opinion, this is experience with regardless of what sealer we're talking about the use of the waxes or or the oils these kind of that we think are sacrificial they still build up gotcha now in this case something like a ceramic which is a silica dioxide there is no buildup it's a direct reaction with the film i mean the film if you're using or with ict it's a direct reaction so when the surface wears however it wears it takes it all with it. So you don't have to strip anything like you would have to strip the wax or somehow strip the oil to, to rejuvenate or repair the surface. Gotcha. Yeah. That
0: makes sense. Makes sense. Cool, buddy. All right. Well, one last time, just to remind you, December 4th and 5th, Fundamentals Workshop, ConcreteDesignSchool.com. Go check it out. Anything else you want to talk about, John? No, man. Okay. Well, That's that was good. a good podcast. Yeah. Felt a little long. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a little long, but you know it's a lot of
1: information to pack in.
0: It is, but it isn't. Uh, you know, that's what I just distilled down to. Probably was about thirty minutes. Yeah, is literally twenty years of trial and error distilled down to thirty minutes. Hopefully, that saves some people some trials and tribulations that that uh, I went through that aren't necessary any longer. Right. Uh, so hopefully
1: that saves. Well, huge saved advancements in materials, man. I mean, I I, I know we talk about this, but if we walk back even 10 years, everything you just described, it was so full of pitfalls that we had to try to work around because of the concrete materials that we were using. Yeah. Yeah. So it's we've come a long way. We'll keep pushing, but yeah, we've come a long way. Yeah. And learned a lot. Yeah. I was because talking, of everything you just described.
0: I was talking to my best friend, Charles, who you know, you've met Charles. Mm -hmm. he called me, I was, I was back here casting tile and he called me. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm casting tile. He's like, is that, is that difficult? I was like, no, no, it's actually not, not anymore. It used to be difficult. It used to be extremely difficult to do stuff like this. And it was impossible to cast a quarter inch, you know, but uh, I told him the materials that, that John and I have developed with Kodiak, it just, it takes 99% of the, the struggle out of the process. Yeah. And all the friction points and everything that made it difficult and, and made it time consuming and um, just created all these issues, those are gone. And so really the DIY market, these materials, even though we've, we've designed them for professionals, for the DIYers out there, if you're a maker, you're a DIYer, you're a weekend warrior, these materials will make your life and the products you make a thousand times better. Yeah. So if you're interested in trying concrete, I highly recommend don't make the mistake that so many guys make where they go to Home Depot or Lowe's, they get Quickrete 5000, they get Rapid Set, um, they buy some mix from some company selling edge forms or something. Do not go down that road unless you want to do it two or three times. And then uh, and then finally, try Kodiak Pro and then are like, oh, why didn't I do this to start with? Yeah, you it's, know?
1: it's hard because all of that becomes very frustrating. Yeah. As I was you know, again, mentally, while you were saying what you're saying, think of that Uh, because we've been there at some point, I can, my heart goes out to the guy who made that post that he, you know, with his cast in place. And I mean, I just, I remember what it felt like and your heart would sink. And even if that was in his own house, you're like, Oh my gosh. Do I try to fix it try try to pat you know do I get a lipstick on this pig? Am I gonna destroy my cabinetry by trying to rip it out? Yeah I mean that's uh, just a horrible place to be in and none of us I mean you really don't have to be there anymore. yeah well it was my last
0: point with that post was I some of the comments I read were talking about saving money, right They're like, mm-hmm. well do this it's way cheaper or something there's one or two comments along those lines. And I was what I thought when I read those comments was the cost of doing it twice is always far more than the cost of doing it right the first time. Right. No to question. do it right one time only is the cheapest way. Had this gentleman contacted Joe Bates and ordered maker mix and poured this using maker mix, he would have had very different results. And not that he was wrong using Quickrete 5000. I started using Quickrete 5000 when I first started my company, right? But that's what we're talking about. Back then, it was way more difficult than it needed to be. It was difficult because that was what it was. I mean, not that it needed to be. It was difficult because it was difficult. And through innovation, it's become a lot easier and a lot better and a lot more consistent and just a lot better in product. But that's been through innovation over two decades. But for somebody starting today, you don't have to go through those things that we went through. Unless you want to, unless you want to, and some people do, yep. then go down to Home Depot or Lowe's and, and go that route. But better things exist, and we don't make it difficult. The other thing is um, I had electricians here today working. You still there, buddy? Yep. I'm like,
1: uh. I, I was waiting for you to boop, boop,
0: boop, and
1: come <laughs> back, but you did.
0: So <laughs> I, I had electricians here today working, and um, I was working on these tile acid, and, and uh, doing the whole thing. And they were, they were like, man, those are, those are really cool. Like, how do you cast it that thin? I'm like, well, it's a UHPC. And I said, you know, UHPC, it's a material that other companies uh, manufacture UHPC products, materials, but you have to buy a license. And that license can be $20,000 just to have the yeah. privilege to buy their product. You have to buy a license to buy their product. And if you don't buy the license, you can't buy their product. And so by doing that, they essentially keep everybody from having access to the product. Only, you know, very wealthy companies can afford to buy that license and then buy their product. Our product is readily available to everybody. And so if you contact Joe Bates, joescfabnapa.com, contact Joe Bates, he'll sell you a bag, you know? So these materials and these innovations are easily accessible, readily available, cost-effective, and make a world of difference for anybody that's wanting to make their own products. So I highly encourage you, if you're a maker, if you're a DIYer, don't make the mistake of using subpar products because of cost because by the time you do it two three times, you could have just done it right the first time and it would have been far cheaper and you wouldn't have all that time invested in recasting again and again. So that's my advice. Yeah. All right. I On agree. that note, John, you ready to wrap it up? Goodbye,
1: Brennan
0: <laughs> go. <laughs> no, no, no. We end this with adios, amigo
1: okay sorry buddy adios adios john sure. all quiet <laughs> we leave quietly I and mean, leave quietly i come in like a wrecking ball <laughs> <laughs>
0: i'm like swinging in on like a little wrecking ball yeah
1: there you go buddy i'll get my kick going yep. i'll get the kick all right all right man adios adios